0: As Catherine mentioned today, is Christ the King Day. The readings are actually not an easy set with which to grasp, to grapple, at least for me. While the readings don't seem to suggest this, the entire idea of worshipping Jesus as King lends itself to a long list of platitudes about royalty and majesty splendor, magnificence, radiance, and stateliness to seem a bit over the top, for the Jesus I have come to know as a firebrand or justice, a sharp and intuitive listener, a compassionate and kind friend. The entire idea of worshiping King Jesus provokes my Protestant reformed roots definitely, and triggers a bit of a fire in the belly that has been particularly galvanized this week as I watched some of the impeachment hearings calling our own self-imposed king to accountability. This day is also the last day of our liturgical year, and next week we begin our next liturgical year with the season of Advent. But the tradition of this day, as Christ the King Day, actually has its roots in the Roman Catholic tradition and is relatively new. It was Pope Pius XI who called for the establishment of this day in 1925. So that got me curious. Why then? Why this name for it? What was its purpose? What was so unique about that period and time that prompted the Pope to make a special day worshiping Jesus, especially as king? If anyone here has watched the PBS series of Downton Abbey, you have traveled with the fictional and aristocratic Crawley family and their domestic household, headed by the Earl of Grantham. Through the post-Edwardian era in the early 19th century particularly 1912 through 1926. During this time period there were tremendous global events that not only shaped and changed the British aristocracy but to a great extent the rest of the world as well. Those events in the stretch of just a few years must have seemed like the world was coming to an end at times. There was World War I, which was 1914 to 1918. It was the Great War, the war to end all wars, which we know is not true. That war eventually claimed millions of military and civilian lives, not only from combat, but also from disease and famine. Millions of lives. Right on top of the ending of World War I came a Spanish flu a pandemic of 1918 that surfaced and is estimated to have killed 50 million people across the globe, and it seemed to be unstoppable at the time. There was the increase of technological improvements like sewing machines and typewriters, telephones, airplanes, industrial machinery, and modern inventions that contributed to the rise and empowerment of the working class who challenged the injustice of the ruling classes, not just in Britain, but pretty globally. There were changing social norms related to that, the women's suffrage movement, the growth of political movements like socialism and communism, and the threat of burgeoning dictatorships. Sometimes when I read that list, it feels like that's very, there's a lot of similarities to what we experience today. The world as it had been known had totally changed and challenged the understanding of one's place in the world. Pope Pius XI lived through that time as well, before and after he became elevated to Pope in 1922. Perhaps he was motivated to draw people back from the brink of despair, to point out to them that God still pays attention and is still in charge, even during the times we don't understand, even in spite of human created crises and the insidious hand of greed and power-seeking. One of our readings today is from Jeremiah, events in his day, might have seemed like the world was coming to an end too. Jeremiah was a handful, one of a handful of prophetic voices at the time of the Jewish exile, trying to call the people away from their faithless ways and back to the laws of God. The Jewish tribes had united in a monarchy and eventually established themselves as a great and powerful nation under King David and then his son. King Solomon. They had military might, great wealth, extreme power, and the regard of other nations. Mighty temple had been completed during Solomon's reign to worship their God and house the sacred objects and rituals of their faith. After Solomon's death, however, there was a falling out between the leaders, one of whom was Solomon's son. The united monarchy of the Israelites split into two countries. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. In both places, there were prophetic voices seeking and pleading with the people to turn back to the ways and teachings of God or suffer the consequences. But the leaders did not listen. Eventually, the northern kingdom was captured by the Assyrians and taken off into the wilderness, and no one really knows what happened to them. They are truly lost to history. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted about another 125 years or so, before it too was conquered by the superpower of the day, the Babylonians, who destroyed the magnificent temple ransacked the city, and took most of the people into exile, leaving behind those who were helpless, ill, elderly, and who could not mount a counterattack. The central cause of Judah's exile, however, was not the aggressive, greedy, land-hungry Babylonians. Rather, it was Judah's own corrupt leadership from the inside the shepherds of Judah, their kings and religious leaders, who were corrupt and had brought about the conditions that led to their own destruction. Instead of caring for the flock, they scattered them. Instead of attending to the people, they were exploiting their labor. Instead of integrating God's laws into the fabric of how the power structure did business They chose the oh-so-human law of might makes right. By this point in the book of Jeremiah, the leadership of these corrupt shepherds had reached the unavoidable consequences that led to suffering. Exile was inevitable. The final destruction of what had been so great loomed. Jeremiah pivots from proclaiming doom to offering hope in God's promises. He is saying, look beyond the horizon to see the promise of a new shepherd, a shepherd who gathers, not scatters, a shepherd who will bring them back, not drive them away, who will lead them beside still waters instead of making them work or be on call or be ready to respond to anxiety-driven texts and emails at all hours. A shepherd whose grace enables them to realize the intention God had for humanity from the beginning, to be fruitful and multiply and to flourish. The shepherd that Jeremiah was referring to and hoping for eventually came in the frame of Jesus nearly 600 years later. But Jesus did not come as any kind of a king. That is a name that people have used as a label. Because they saw in him majestic purpose, deep dignity, and unrelenting integrity. They saw and see. The power of God working in a unique partnership with humanity that seeks the deep change of human hearts. Jesus came as a good shepherd who gathers us, especially those most likely to feel left behind. Jesus came as a good shepherd willing to speak truth to power. Jesus came as a good shepherd who bids us lay our burdens down and come to him for rest. This kind of shepherding, this kind of kingship, is costly. The kings of the world resist it, despise it, want to stamp it out, and they try to do so. That's what we see on Calvary. That's today's gospel reading, a battle between worldly kings and divine kings, corrupt shepherds and the good shepherd, between the way of love, which happens through forgiveness, compassion, and peace, and the way of evil, greed, and fear. It is deep change of the human heart that God is after. For that, that spurs on the action of love to rise up and do the hard things. Seeking dignity for the homeless. Being a voice for the voiceless. Standing in solidarity to challenge those who need to be called to account for their misuse of the power entrusted to them. Where might our modern prophets be calling to account those who thrive on power, deception, vengeance, egocentric greed, and indifference to human suffering? Nearly 2,000 years after Jeremiah raised his voice, Pope Pius XI pointed the people, and particularly the political leaders of that time, in the early 19th century, to remember the majesty and primacy of God. God's people had been in this tough spot before and would be again. It was and is a time to remember whose beloved child we are and who we are being called to become. Leaders across the world today are being called to account by the people they serve. It's interesting to watch. Hong Kong, Israel, France, Iraq, Great Britain, the United States. Perhaps Christ the King Day is entirely appropriate this year. Christ in our hearts and minds and wills can rise above these discouraging things that drain us of any resolve or hope. God will still be standing long after these days are done. Just like God is still standing long after Jeremiah spoke and long after Pope Pius XI called for the naming of this day. Where in all this is our story? Where is God in our hopefulness? Just as a seed grows from a tiny kernel into an apple tree, The seed of God that lodges in our lives unfolds in its time, bringing forth who we are meant to be, not predestined, not predetermined. Our God is a God of transformation and revelation, emerging in our lives if we choose to open ourselves to the Creator's transforming power and grace. In Christ, we are made God's people not bound by geographic boundaries or ethnic bonds of earthly kingdoms that come and go. Our common bond is found in the waters of baptism, and our common sustenance is found in the bread of life and the blood of Christ with us and within us. Our common work is the establishment of justice, and our common call is the welcoming of all whom Christ would welcome especially the chronically unwelcome ones. God calls us from the sidelines and plumps us down right in the middle of God's work of redeeming love, in our work and politics, in our families and schools, in our friendships and with those who hurt us, with our enemies and our allies, among the outcasts of the society and among those things that distract and disconnect us from God. The great Alpha and Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end, comes not in a prepackaged, pre-programmed revelation ready to unfold in a predictable manner at our bidding. The face of God we seek and find is as unique and penetrating as the person sitting next to us. For the heart of God lodges deeply within each soul and advances us forward toward the accomplishment of God's dreams. God is our refuge and our strength, says the psalmist, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth be moved, though the mountains be toppled into the depths of the sea Those waters rage and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its tumult, be still, the psalmist says. Be still, and know that I am God.